Please pick up a handout at the back there. It's on the seat there. Now you may want to open your Bible to 1 Samuel 16. I'll be doing most of the talking tonight. Uh, next week uh, we'll do a little more dialogic uh, Bible study, but I want to create uh, the background, particularly archaeological and historical, to this period. Uh, but Lord willing, we will uh, get to 1 Samuel 16, uh, 1 to 13 this evening, and uh, you may want to have your Bible open. I also did suggest that if you want to have a little more room uh, to maneuver the handout sheets, uh, you might want to leave a chair between you and your Bible and the papers that are around you. That's a handout at the back there, Tracy. The life of David extends from 1 Samuel 16 to 1 Kings chapter 2. And uh, my intention is to work through that narrative uh, over the course of the next two seminary semesters, so the next 26 weeks. And it will take us uh, two hours each Thursday evening to complete that journey. Uh, That may be a little more daunting than you anticipated, but nonetheless, we'll take a break at about the 8 o'clock mark and uh, continue uh, in the second hour. But if uh, that's more than you uh, bargained for, please uh, stay as long as you can, uh, get what you can, and uh, we hope you all come back to continue uh, in this in this study about this remarkable uh, and yet uh, sadly tragic in some ways king of Israel. Let's bow together in prayer as we open this evening. Our Father, we are dependent upon the illumination of your Holy Spirit as we look into your word at any point. And at this particular part of the inspired scriptures, with that king after your own heart, we would pray that you enable us to see beyond the obvious and the superficial. Let us realize that your word is deeply profound and draws us down into your very own mind and heart. Enable us, O Lord, not to use the scriptures for our own purposes, but to lose our life that we may be drawn into the life of the word which is living and risen, the word who is your son, even great David's greater son. We pray that you will then conduct us in a way which will edify us and enrich our understanding of the history of redemption. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. You will want to follow the handout outline that you have. It will be helpful to you as I make my remarks. Who is David? Our question is the question of Nabal in 1 Samuel 25.10. But Nabal adds, and who is the son of Jesse? Ben Jesse in Hebrew. 
You will note the duplication, and you may suspect that the doubling is an unnecessary redundancy, which is superfluous or just plain wordy. However, the Semitic or Hebrew mode of expression is rarely redundant, superfluous, or wordy. Therefore, we realize the repetition is intentional. Nabal means to pose his interrogatives twice over. What is his point? The form of his expression is parallel. You can see this even in the English translation, who is X, the son or the child, and who is Y, the father or the patronymic, Ben Jesse. word patronymic means related to his father. We have a clue to why Nabal does this in the Hebrew text. You will notice the Hebrew on the right-hand side of your outline. You read Hebrew from right to left, not from left to right as you do English. Line A contains two Hebrew words pronounced from right to left, me, Dawid. Line B contains three Hebrew words pronounced, wu, me, ben, yesai. Now, you will notice that the second line in the Hebrew text is longer than the first line. That is not just an increase in words, which would be construed as wordy. Hebrew parallelism or Hebrew symmetry in narrative or in poetry is expansive. It amplifies. It enlarges. It augments. Nabal expands or amplifies his question from David the son to Jesse the father. B enlarges, amplifies, augments A. One way to read the Hebrew AB parallelism or the Hebrew AB symmetry is to suggest this paradigm, what is A and what is more B. More than line A is line B in a Hebrew parallel duality. Who is David? And what is more, who is the son of Jesse? The parallel expands Nabal's focus from the son to the father of the son. Thus, the form or symmetry of his expression, his twofold interrogative, tells us something. In other words, this intentional parallelism has a point behind it. The parallel or symmetrical form is also found in Hebrew poetry. It is routinely found in Hebrew poetry, which occurs in the Psalms, in Proverbs, and in the Prophets. Since the Psalms are Hebrew poetry, you may read the Psalms using this pattern of expansive parallelism to help you understand the rules of two symmetrical lines of a Hebrew psalm. 
You will notice in your handout, I have an illustration from the 51st Psalm, the great penitential Psalm of King David. What is A? Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And the parallel line, what is more B? And cleanse me from my sin. You will notice the expansion. The cleansing action is a more expressive description of thorough washing. Or, for I know my transgressions, what is A and what is more B, and my sin is ever before me. You notice the expansion or the addition that the parallelism makes in the second line so that we are not talking in Hebrew parallelism about exact synonymous parallelism. That is, they're saying exactly the same thing. That was the idea up to about 30 or 40 years ago. But modern Hebrew poets, modern, modern, Hebrew sto- modern students of Hebrew poetry now realize that the second line, the B line, is always an expansion. It is an advance upon uh, the line that precedes it. Uh, If there are any extra copies of the handout, or some of you have taken two, and you can give up one, uh, if you would uh, hand one to Lori back there at the back so that she can have one for herself. Or if we need to make another copy, uh, Benji, if you could make another copy, could you... Uh, run to the machine and run one off for us. Thank you very much. So, as you read the Psalms, as you read the poetry of the Old Testament, keep this paradigm in mind. It will help you understand the expansive or amplification of the second uh, clause in a so-called Hebrew bicolon. Now, returning to Nabal and his question, who is David? The tone of his double interrogative is not mere curiosity. There is a snarl in Nabal's voice. Who is David? And we hear his contempt for David as a renegade or outlaw servant of King Saul. And what is more, who is the son of Jesse? where we hear his contempt for David's father or the family of David. Perhaps this contempt for the father arises from the fact that they are regarded as peasant shepherds. They are not wealthy businessmen like Nabal himself. Definitely small fry and of no consequence. Who is Jesse? So the parallel symmetry here is a marked instance of curlish disrespect and utter contempt. Verse 25 of 1 Samuel 25 confirms this conclusion when Abigail, Nabal's wife, points out that he is a fool. The term fool here indicates one bound by folly, the folly of arrogance, pride, Contempt, the folly of haughty boasting in his wealth, his 3,000 sheep and his 1,000 goats, as 1 Samuel 25, verse 2 indicates. It is the perennial folly of those with great wealth and no humility. They are arrogant and contemptuous 
and they despise those below them. And they make sure you know it when they are around. Nabal was a fool. Our echo of Nabal's question, who is David, is not contemptuous. It is inquisitive, investigative, educational. Who is David that we may learn of him through his career revealed to us from 1 Samuel 16 to 1 Kings 2? But beyond that, we would learn of David that we may learn of David's Lord. Who is David? And what is more, who is David's Lord? Matthew twenty-two forty-five. Or to put it in biblical theological terms, we would learn of the protological David that we may learn even more of the eschatological David. What is A, who is the protological David, and what is more B, who is the eschatological David? As we look at David, son of Jesse, we shall always be looking steadfastly unto Jesus, son of God. Not only in this study, but I want to encourage you to read your Bible at every point in this way, looking steadfastly unto Jesus from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Who is David? Hero or hypocrite? The enigma of David confronts us as his career unfolds. The heroic narratives, David and Goliath. David and Saul, whom he refuses to kill. David and his beloved friend, Jonathan. David and the campaign to unify Israel as a united kingdom. David and the capture of Jerusalem, that mountaintop city, Mount Zion, glorious for situation. But then there are the hypocritical narratives, David and Bathsheba. David and Uriah, whom he brutally murders. David and Joab, David and Tamar, David and Mephibosheth. The stories of David are stories of heroic battles and victories, but also stories of illicit and brutal sex. Stories of intense loyalty, but also stories of crass betrayal. Stories of do-something active bravery, but also stories of do-nothing passive cowardice. Who is David? Hero or hypocrite? As one writer has noted, he's a bit of a daredevil like the Scarlet Pimpernel. He feigns madness like Hamlet. He's head of a band of outlaws like Robin Hood, and he betrayed by his own children like King Lear. The echoes of the career of David echo down through great 
Western literature. And then there's the poetry, the songs of David. David as the sweet singer of Israel. Does the poetry compound the enigma? Or does it resolve the enigma of the contradictions in David's career? Or do the narratives and poetry from the life of a sinner merely direct our attention to the narrative and poetry of the one who is not a sinner? One who is greater than David because he is God incarnate. And this one will endure the contradiction of sinners, even David's sins. This one will endure the contradiction of sinners so as to resolve the dilemma with the sinless and non-contradictory, non-enigmatic kingdom of heaven. I want to discuss the archaeology of David as it has now been somewhat spectacularly uncovered. Over the last 20 years, over the last four years, there have been some remarkable archaeological excavations that have revealed some very interesting and uh, dramatic uh, relationships to the career of King David. The first is the famous granddaughter of Benjamin Matzar who was perhaps Israel's most famous archaeologist in the 20th century, his granddaughter, Eilat Matzar, who in 2005, merely four years ago, uncovered what she maintains is the foundation stone level of David's palace. Now, with the handout that you have, you will need to keep side by side the photograph of the uh, stone slopes in Jerusalem, and the little schematic which explains those stone slopes in a way that is easier for you to visualize and interpret. These excavations have all proceeded since the conclusion of the Six Days War in 1967, when the Jews took back Jerusalem, particularly the East Quarter and the Wailing Wall, and now have been excavating ever since, attempting to dig under the hillsides that have covered up these stones in order to reveal what the stones cry out, to coin a phrase. Now, you will notice that King David's palace, or at least the foundation stones, is at the top level of that slope of piled-up stone foundations. Eilat Matsar, two years ago, believes that just in front of King David's palace foundation are the remaining bricks of Nehemiah's wall, so-called northern tower that was built in Jerusalem when Nehemiah came back to erect the walls of refuge and protection around a harassed, returned people of God. Now, these suggestions are tentative, and Dr. Mazar has not been dogmatic about them, but nonetheless has suggested that they fit the pattern of the slopes and the history of what has been excavated both around them and underneath them, and consequently she is sticking by 
her attribution that what lays on top of this layer is what remains of the foundation of King David's palace, and what is in front and below it is part of Nehemiah's wall and perhaps part of another wall that a stepped stone structure may be part of another wall which even uh, predates the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 586. At any rate, we have uh, archaeological uh, evidence uh, from a credible uh, Israeli archaeologist who is not uh, digging with any axe to grind, so to speak, just simply trying to see what the stones demonstrate and what uh, what they indicate as she uncovers the layers and sifts through the gravel and the rock, which you do when you uh, do an archaeological dig, <clears throat> and uh, proposes that she has identified the uh, historical foundation of King David's palace, uh, which he erected in Jerusalem. Now, the second set of sheets uh, shows you the Tel Dan inscription. You may want to have them side by side. I have used an arrow to point out the uh, pertinent lines. The Tel Dan inscription was discovered in 1993 in Laish of Dan, which is northern Israel, very uh, close to Mount Hermon, and is an Aramaean or Syrian inscription dated to the early 9th century B.C. The estimate is that it dates from perhaps around uh, 830 to 880 B.C. Now, you will notice that the original language is very strange. It doesn't look like anything uh, you're familiar with. It doesn't even look like anything that students of biblical Hebrew are familiar with. It is proto-Canaitic or proto-Semitic. That is, it is a form of Semitic or Hebrew or Canaanite expression that predates what we call uh, biblical Aramaic and biblical Hebrew. And yet those who are trained to read biblical Hebrew and biblical Aramaic can also decipher this, and that is what has been done in the transliteration that you see uh, in the uh, English printed page And the line which is of particular interest is line number nine, which has the characters B, Y, T, D, W, D. As you can see, if you look at line nine, it has the arrow with it. And the B, Y, T is the Hebrew for Beth, for as as an example, Bethlehem. And the Hebrew word Beth means house. Bethlehem means house of bread. But here we have Beth. DWD, Beth Dawid, Beth David, House of David. This inscription is the first extra biblical testimony to the existence of the House of David, the dynasty of David, in fact, the existence of King David. And since it's dated about 830 to 880 BC, it is within a century, it's within a hundred years of David's life existence. So it is very close to his own historical existence. Now, the significance of this is not so much what the tablet describes. It describes a victory by an Aramean or Syrian king, perhaps Ben-Hadad of 1 Kings 15, 16 to 22, perhaps, not, not certain about that, 
but it describes a victory of this Syrian king over an Israelite, Israelite and Judah uh, coalition. And he calls the uh, house of Judah or the nation of Judah the house of David. Now, the significance of this is that we have a unprejudiced testimony from an unbiased archaeological source, even from an enemy of the house of Israel and Judah, testifying to the existence of David's dynasty, which, of course, means David himself. And in the modern discussion, this is a very important objective historical uh, evidence of the historicity of David and of his kingdom. Well, how do we date David? If the Tel Dan inscription comes from the 9th century BC, where do we put David on the line of chronological history? 2 Samuel 5, verse 4, indicates that David reigned 40 years, as does his successor son, Solomon. He reigns 40 years, as did his predecessor antagonist, Saul. He reigns 40 years. So if we could establish a benchmark date in the ancient world, if we could establish a date that seems to be a anchor point, we could orient David around that date. For instance, if we could establish the date of the reigns of King Solomon, then we would know the years in which David and Saul reigned, and also we could go forward from King Solomon's reign to the destruction of Samaria by the Assyrians in 721 B.C. and the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Well, in fact, there is a uniform consensus amongst virtually all Old Testament scholars about the date of Solomon's reign. Whether they are liberal or conservative, whether it's John Bright or Leon Wood, they all agree that King Solomon ruled a a united uh, Israel from 970 to 930 B.C., actually 971 to 931 B.C., but nonetheless, there is objective consensus that we can date Solomon to that 40-year period. Well, it's a simple matter then to add 40 years to Solomon's reign and to get back to 1010 to 970 B.C. for David's 40-year rule over Israel, and beyond that, 40 years for Saul, 1050 to 1010 B.C. So in round figures, if you're looking at kind of rough dates, David is about 1,000 B.C., as Abraham is about 2,000 B.C., and so there's a kind of two anchor points to hang the first and second millennium uh, characters and the events that flow out of them upon and are fairly well attested and agreed upon, at least by those that don't believe that Abraham is a myth or that David himself is an invention. Which brings us to the current discussion of David, Jerusalem, and the Davidic monarchy. Now, you may have been wondering why I'm spending this time talking about the archaeological excavations and why I'm going to spend time talking about the current discussion. Uh, Well, because the educated layman, as well as the educated pastor, is aware of the current discussion. 
He may not be an expert on it, but he is conscious of what's going on in the academy, in the marketplace, in the discussions which are going on in Old and New Testament circles. In fact, that's one of his responsibilities. He'd been called to understand the word of God in the light of the ongoing providence of God. And we are talking about the ongoing providence of God in the uncovering of the palace foundation of David and also the Tel Dan inscription. These things don't happen by accident, all you Calvinists out there, because God has superintended them. And therefore, you have to deal with them. You have to understand them. You have to think about them. You can't play ignorant Passive Christian church sitters, much as you may like to do that, you are called to be educated understanders of what's going on in the discussions around you, in the intellectual world in which you live, and not just on YouTube. (laughs) So the position that most of you would take is that you don't have any doubt about the historicity of David, so why do we have to talk about this archaeological rigmarole? Well, you don't think David's a myth or an invention, so what's the point? There is a very large academic, intellectual, and religious lobby out there that believes that David is fiction, as well as Abraham, as well as Moses. They are all figures who have been invented by a political elite in the 7th century B.C. of Israel and afterwards in order to make heroes of past figures so that those heroic figures can be the basis for political maneuvering in the 7th century and afterwards. Now, we call that liberal higher criticism. But it is alive and well in the Reformed churches as the dismissal of Peter Enns from Westminster in Philadelphia last year indicates. And it is seeping into the Reformed churches because not only of Peter Enns' students and disciples, but of others who are now beginning to see that evangelicalism, even Reformed evangelicalism, must get with the movement. And that means with the popular, liberal, higher, critical, Old and New Testament movement, which means that David becomes questionable. Now, you may say, this doesn't bother my faith. Uh, I can live in my little ostrich hole. It doesn't bother me. And yet, that is being taught in the seminaries from which you are deriving ordained interns or potential ordained interns and ministers. And if you're not aware of that, then you are buying a damaged bag of goods because you're ignorant. You're not asking those questions. Now, I'm not speaking of what goes on in this institution, but I can point my finger at Westminster and Philadelphia because of the debacle of Mr. Enns when 18 members of that faculty voted to keep him on the staff. And they are still there, 16 of the 18 And so don't think that just because it's called Westminster Seminary, it is pristinely orthodox. The inroads of liberalism never stop at the door of a seminary. They are insistently parasitic. 
And whether you realize it or not, the mainline reform seminaries are being undermined by higher criticism and a form of liberalism. Well, with respect to David, it hasn't gotten that bad yet, although there are certain articles in the journal literature suggesting that maybe the picture of David in First and Second Chronicles was invented. Hmm. In fact, there is a famous commentary written by a former, now dead, reformed theologian in which he argued that First and Second Chronicles was twisted and shaped by political ideology in order to make David look very good. And you say it won't hurt your faith. Liberalism is insidious. It masks itself as pietism and insinuates itself into the church and unguardedly, uneducated and ignorantly people open their arms to it and only later on, as J. Gresham Machen found out, wake up to realize the church has been taken over. Well, this is a small instance of this larger problem when we look at the current discussion of David. You would say... I believe that the Bible's inspired. David is a historical figure, and all the events recorded in 1 Samuel 16 to 1 Kings 2 are accurate and historically true. You follow the hermeneutics of inspiration. You regard David as the shepherd of Bethlehem, the sweet singer of the Psalms of Zion, the one anointed king over a united Israel, a New Testament messianic prototype. You regard David in a positive light, the positive portrait of a sinner saved by grace, even as you are a sinner saved by grace. This hermeneutic of inspiration has tremendously courageous defenders in our own 20 and 21st century. The most courageous being K.A. Kitchen the emeritus professor of Egyptology at the University of Liverpool in England, a world-class Egyptologist and a world-class evangelical. K.A. Kitchen has, for over 40 years, been defending the historical accuracy of the Old Testament. He only has made one blunder, that is, he favors the early date, of the late date of the Exodus, 1200 B.C., rather than 1446. I won't forgive him for that, but he won't budge. Nonetheless, his most recent book on the reliability of the Old Testament is a tour de force, and it slays the liberal higher critic's hip and thigh. It is a masterpiece. It is absolutely essential reading for all conservative seminarians, as reason is a required textbook in our Old Testament introduction course here. Besides K.A. Kitchen who is well-respected, as I said, as a world-class Egyptologist, he has translated hieroglyphic texts that are used by Egyptian scholars all over the world. That's how good he is. The fact that he's a believing Christian is a bonus. Add to him Gleason Archer, who died five years ago, the emeritus professor of Old Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois, and Eugene Merrill, the current Old Testament professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. They are defenders of the historicity and objectivity of David, king in Jerusalem. You may say to me, 
What other way is there to consider the biblical story of David? Well, there are currently a great many scholars who regard the story of David and Solomon as an invention, a myth manufactured in the 7th century B.C. during the reign of King Josiah by the priests in Jerusalem in order to justify the prominence of Judah and the royal house of David at Jerusalem. In other words, it's priestcraft all contrived for political one-upsmanship. Many of these scholars say that First and Second Samuel has been written by spin doctors or spinmeisters. In other words, all that you are going to read if you stick with these presentations over the next 26 weeks has been manufactured out of political opportunism, spin doctors. We're used to that in the current political climate, are we not? And so it's just simply an application of the current political ethos to the Bible and to the story of David and Solomon. There are three major players in this discussion. The first is Israel Finkelstein, whose book, The Bible Unearthed, published in 2001, became a New York bestseller, New York Times bestseller. It hit the top of the list. And you say that this doesn't make any difference, either to your faith or to your understanding. There are all kinds of people all over the United States reading this book and believing that David is a fairy tale. Because Israel Finkelstein is professor of archaeology at Tel Aviv University in Palestine. He is a world-class archaeological scholar. And this world-class archaeological scholar says that the life of David is not history, it is propaganda. It is ideology. He says that Jerusalem was not a city, it was a tiny mountain village in the 11th century B.C. And David was a small-town tribal chieftain of dubious reputation. In fact, his, his story, which is recorded in the Bible, is essentially constructed or fabricated to endorse the religious and political policies of the 7th century B.C. Once again, Josiah's priests inventing a story for political purposes of maneuvering and manipulating the kingdom of Judah in from 640 down uh, to 609 B.C. when Josiah died at Megiddo. Well, <clears throat> Baruch Halpern is the second scholar who wrote a book called David's Secret Demons, another runaway bestseller. Again, it hit the New York Times bestseller list. And he argues that David was a, and I'm quoting him here, serial killer, unquote, who operated on, I'm quoting him here, the standard mob-style procedure, unquote, by rubbing out or authorizing, I'm quoting him here, hits, unquote, on his enemies. Now, if this sounds vaguely familiar, like that notoriously famous TV series called The Sopranos, there is a parallel between the two. The biblical account is a fictional concoction, even as The Sopranos was tragically, unfortunately, and diabolically a fictional concoction. But that's what Baruch Halpern believes about the story of David and he's written a bestseller and has made himself a very nice fat royalty check out of his efforts. The third is Stephen McKenzie's King David a biography. 
Mackenzie agrees with Halpern in reading the biblical account of David, as he says in his book, quote, against the grain, unquote. That is, he inverts the biblical narrative to portray David 180 degrees opposite to the portrait that the writer of 1st and 2nd Samuel gives us. Now, you have heard of contrarian investment uh, policies and goals. Well, here is a contrarian academic approach to David. Whatever the text of 1st and Samuel says about David, we take the contrary, exact opposite view and say that's the true view. The first and second Van Samuel view had been fabricated and invented. And so you have these three representatives. They are not all of those that are out there playing the field. You have these three primary representatives of what I call the hermeneutics of suspicion. They do not believe that David is an historical figure. He is a mythological fabrication and invention projected into the hoary past of Israel's story. Now, uh, that may have uh, caused your blood pressure to rise a little bit, or uh, you may be relaxing and say it's water off a duck's back. In my case, you know, I don't pay any attention to these people, et cetera, et cetera. I warn you, New York Times bestseller list, seminarians are reading this stuff. Even in conservative seminaries, they're reading it. It's going to make its way into your circles if you live long enough. All right, well, let's relax a little bit ourselves and come down off our high horse and take a look at the figure of Saul, king of Israel. Saul of the tribe of Benjamin is anointed first king of Israel because the people of Israel want a king like all the nations, 1 Samuel 8, 5. The irony here is that Israel had been set apart from all the nations, distinguished as a peculiar people unto the Lord with God himself as their king. But now the people declare they want to belong not to God, but to the world. They want to be like the nations. Give us a king. Everybody else has got one. Surely we shouldn't be left out. After all, don't we have to keep up with the Joneses and be progressive and modern and enlightened? And Saul, the chosen first king like the nations, Saul is a man of opposites. Outstandingly tall, yet he hides submerged in the baggage. 1 Samuel 10.22 Willing, yet unwilling, because he becomes willful, willfully disobedient. 1 Samuel 15 Needs David, yet tries to kill David, and tries to kill David several times. 1 Samuel 18, 11, 19, 10, 20, 33. Receives Samuel as God's priest, yet massacres the priests of God at Nob. 
1 Samuel 22. Bans sorcerers, yet consults a sorcerer at Endor, 1 Samuel 22. Saul is a man of opposites. He is a man of indecision, hesitation, uncertainty, indecision, hesitation, uncertainty, and self-destruction. For example, Samuel delivers a speech about the evil a king will bring. 1 Samuel 12, verses 1 to 17. And Saul immediately does evil as a king. And that not once, but flagrant evil twice. When he, ref- when he sacrifices without Samuel present and when he refuses to slay all of the Amalekites. The downward spiral of King Saul's career ends at a witch's abode on the road to Endor. Saul is the man demanded by the people as a change. A change from the previous era regarded as ruthless, brutal, and even lawless. Anointed by the surge and the acclaim of the crowd, Basking in the limelight of a groundswell of popularity, Saul supposes himself the people's choice, a political somebody, the one with the buzz, a someone to lead the nation, to be the commander-in-chief of the army, to lead even the priests of the people of the nation. But in truth... Saul is unfit, unqualified, having no experience in leadership. He is, in fact, self-centered and egomaniac, even paranoid, and as vicious and ruthless as the figures of the previous political administration. Saul is a fake. He is a whited sepulcher. He is a charlatan and a fraud. He is a crass and devious hypocrite. Saul is not a tragic figure. King Saul is a diabolic figure with a heart seething with self-loathing and enmity against God. King Saul may be a tragic hero figure to the students of modern biblical literature, and in the academy, Saul is now being made a hero and not a villain. But to take that position is to call evil good. For God the Lord does not do so. And as his infallible word testifies, King Saul is a child of the devil. He is not a son of God. And to the devil he was dispatched after that night at the witch's abode. Well, let's take a few minutes break. 
stretch your legs, get a breath of air, uh, come up uh, for oxygen or whatever the case may be. And uh, we'll return in about five minutes to begin to look at the broad structural macrostructure of uh, 1 Samuel 15 to 31. Incidentally, I am open to taking questions. Uh, you're welcome to even interrupt me in the course of my remarks. Uh, I may run roughshod over you, but there's no personal offense. It's because I have to get on with certain things. But uh, afterwards, uh, also, I'll be happy to stay behind and address any questions. Yeah, but please, don't, don't be bashful. If there's something you want me to expand on or comment upon, I will do so. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, daughter. Yes, daughter. Um, the uh, woman who is making the discoveries, Elliot Mazar, um, is she finding artifacts as well? That she is. She is. She is finding some bullet. Uh, those are little inscribed uh, uh, stones that have some writing on them, and uh, she is in the process of uh, transcribing those, publishing them, and defending them. In fact, she now has a book which is in the press called The Palace of King David, which should be released probably within two months and will be available from certain scholarly presses or scholarly importers. Uh, uh, for instance, Eisenbrown's in Indiana, Dub Booksellers in Michigan, and may be available eventually on Amazon. But it, it is a case, it is a book in which she has written popularly to defend her excavations and to show more of what she has pulled up uh, out of uh, the, those excavation areas, not just the foundation stones, but also some other little artifacts and so on. Um, no, her suspicion is that it was a surface foundation, and so if it goes any place, it goes back underneath what's behind it. But she hasn't said anything more than what is has, what is diagrammed there on the schematic. So is Nehemiah's wall then added to David's palace? Correct, correct. It's added to the destruction layer. You see that is at that uh, that it collapses in front of David's palace as a result of the burning of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar in 586. Remember, you, you've got a burn layer on top of all of this, a burn layer which has been excavated by archaeologists with charred um, wood and burned ashes and Babylonian arrowheads, which you know came from the 586 invasion, and consequently uh, that collapsed everything above it. So you've got a whole pile of rubble that you've got to uncover in order to get down below uh, to, these, uh, to these foundation uh, stones. It was discovered in 1993, but the naysayers refused to accept the fact that the transliteration of that proto-Canaanitic text reads Beth David. They say that's a misreading of the proto-Canaanitic. That's been vigorously defended by the discoverer of the, of the inscription and by other uh, Hebraists, but nonetheless... You have this invincible ignorance that Brian Wood re, uh, remarked when he was giving his uh, archaeology lectures here last spring at the Reform Conference on Jericho. And, you know, he's defended the destruction of Jericho in the 15th century B.C., and yet you've got these late date uh, of the Exodus people that say Jericho wasn't destroyed until after 1200 B.C. And uh, a question was raised, well, you know, with all of the evidence that you've uncovered, because he's done some review of the archaeological evidence at Jericho, how is it these naysayers still dig in their heels? Well, because unbelief is invincible ignorance in many cases. So that, that, that's what we're dealing with in this case as well. How are they responding 
to Mozart's um, suggestion. They're sneering at it. Okay, yes. Finkelstein says she's uh, she's a lunatic. Now, that's not a direct quote, but that's essentially what he's saying. What are, what are, you, you mentioned the one uh, higher critic, uh, Finkelstein's Tel Aviv, but what about Halpern and uh, Mackenzie? What are their credentials? Mackenzie is an Old Testament professor, and Halpern is kind of a popular journalist. So what he's done is he's writing a popular treatment of David for the masses. Welcome. Anything else before you stretch your legs? Okay. As Christina would say, fünf Minuten. Now, as you come back to your seats, let me point out that uh, we won't have enough time in these uh, hours to actually read the text. So uh, I want to encourage you to read the text for yourself before you come. And uh, next week, First uh, Samuel 16, verses 14 to the end of that chapter uh, will be covered, Lord willing. And you may also want to read ahead into the Goliath narrative. In First Samuel 17, we may be able to break ground uh, on that story. So <clears throat> this will uh, have the passage fresh in your mind uh, when you come or come five minutes early and just uh, open your Bible and read it uh, while you wait for me to uh, open my big mouth, so to speak. Now, um, this was an open Bible study which the seminary was offering to the adult lay community and any children that are interested in coming as well. Uh, because we wanted you to have the opportunity, which you don't have and haven't had, uh, aside from the Gospel of John presentation, of seeing us uh, actually unpack a biblical text, a series of biblical texts. We do this in our content courses uh, with our students. Uh, we work through uh, the Pentateuch, that is the books of Moses. We work through the historical books, that is including Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. We work through the poetic books, uh, the Psalms, uh, Song of Solomon, Lamentations. We work through the prophets. Uh, we, we work through the Gospels, through Paul and his epistles, including the book of Acts. And then we work through the Catholic epistles in the book of Revelation. We, in other words, we work through the whole canon as we go through the sequence of content courses in the biblical curriculum with our students. But we have scheduled those classes in the mornings uh, generally and this year we thought rather than giving you church history in the evening, which we have usually done, we would give you a freebie. We would give you a biblical content uh, opportunity. So that's the reason for what we're doing. And we're doing it without an auditor's fee. You'll notice that there are no sheets to fill out and there are no $40 checks to make out. Now, of course, if you want to make a $40 check out to the seminary and donate that, that's wonderful. We would appreciate that. I should... Uh, I should make you aware that these economic times have not been helpful to us. We we uh, have had some very significant challenges, continue to have some significant challenges financially. So, uh, you know, if you're inclined, uh, we, would expect, we would appreciate your donations. But there is no fee for coming to listen to these presentations. Now, <clears throat> the other feature of uh, this uh, series is that we uh, want to post it 
on the web. And in fact, we are going to uh, take the recording and get it up onto the website uh, by tomorrow if we can do that. Uh, our webmaster has pledged to uh, download and upload those files immediately so that you can have access to hearing it. If you want to listen to it again, you can stream it off uh, in uh, live audio uh, on your computer or download it uh, to your iPod or however you do those kinds of things in this advanced technological age, much of which I'm completely ignorant of, but I know about it. So uh, at any rate, uh, that's another place you'll be able to kind of replay uh, what you're hearing. All right, now uh, returning to the uh, outline and the macro structure of First Samuel 15 to 31. This section of the inspired word of God details David's rise and Saul's demise, or the constitution of David's kingdom and the destitution of Saul's kingdom. Now, you may ask me, Denison, where did you get that English word destitution? Uh, it's really not in the best dictionaries because I've stolen it from the French lexicon. Uh, destitution en français means a, a degeneration or a downgrade. So I'm borrowing it because of the liter alliteration with constitution. Now, if you look at the broad paradigm there, the structure of Saul and Amalek in 1 Samuel 15 is matched by David and Amalek in 1 Samuel chapter 30. Uh, there is, in fact, a bookend effect to this portion of 1 Samuel. It's not entirely an inclusio, but nonetheless, it is a bracketing or framework device around the narratives from 15 to 31. The sequence continues from Saul and Amalek in chapter 15 to David anointed as king in chapter 16, and finally the death of Samuel in 1 Samuel 25. Now you will notice that the A prime or the bracket framework includes David acting as a king in 1 Samuel 30, particularly verses 26 and following, a very interesting testimony to David's impact on the extent of the kingdom of Israel in those verses. And finally, death of Saul in 1 Samuel 31. So we have these parallels, which look somewhat symmetrical, and in between, sandwiched between these parallel uh, bookmarkers or framing devices or bracketing paradigms is the shift. The shift which occurs between the rise of Saul and the rise of David, the shift in the kingdom which goes from Saul to David in 1 Samuel 24 to 29. Now, as an alternative suggestion about a structural outline of these uh, chapters, <clears throat> I have also given you the option of looking at David's rise and Saul's demise in relationship to their uh, identification or conjunction with the Philistines. So David's rise and exile to Philistia encompasses 1 Samuel 16 to 21. Saul's demise and death at the hands of the Philistines encompasses 1 Samuel 23 to 31. And here, the transition point, that is the sandwich between the framework brackets, 
is the slaughter of the priests of Nob in 1 Samuel 22. That's the place where Saul's true colors are unmasked uh, once and for all, and he is on a downward spiral to his own death at the hands of the Philistines in chapter 31. Now, whether or not that is the tightest structural macro outline or not is a matter of debate. It is a suggestion for your consideration as you look at how the narrator, that is the writer, the inspired writer of 1 Samuel 15 to 31, has actually constructed or ordered his narrative. I am suggesting that this is intentional and that the structure is, in fact, laid out to frame certain events which occur between the outer limits of the A, A prime brackets. Now, there's another way of looking at the paradigm that includes David and Saul, and that's a displacement paradigm. And here I am making a case for narrative unity and continuity. Uh, Many liberal higher critics believe that the Bible is a series of hodgepodge patchwork uh, narratives or devices in which stories have been thrown in in the midst of other stories. And so the liberal scholar has to extract the true story and uh, show what uh, what was done to interrupt the flow of the narrative or the integrity of the book. We don't proceed that way, and this displacement paradigm is a very interesting uh, kind of apologetic for the seamless garment that is First and Second Samuel. You will notice that young Samuel displaces in the early narrative of First Samuel old Eli, First Samuel 3. And then young Saul displaces old Samuel as the leader of the nation of Israel in 1 Samuel 8 and 9. Then the young David displaces the aging or older Saul in 1 Samuel 16. And finally, the young Solomon will displace the older David in 1 Kings 2. You notice this paradigm of one figure being displaced with another as they move from young to old or from youth to maturity. And at each point of the displacement, there is a kind of narrative transition. But you can't have the subsequent stories, the subsequent narratives, Solomon, David, etc., without the preceding ones. In other words, the narrator has used this paradigm, not that it's historically manufactured, it's true, but he's used this paradigm to represent this seamless narrative continuity from Eli to Samuel to Saul to David to Solomon, etc. So, as I say, a kind of backhanded or indirect apologetic for the narrative integrity of 1st, 2nd Samuel, and even the early chapters of 1st Kings. In addition, there is an intriguing stepstone narrative progression in these accounts as well. Eli, the old judge of Israel, is succeeded by Samuel, who is described as a prophet as well as a judge of Israel. Samuel, who is described as a judge and prophet of Israel, is succeeded by Saul, who is the first king of Israel. 
Saul turns out to be a false king, succeeded by David, the true king. And David, the warrior king, is succeeded by Solomon, the king in Shalom, or the king in peace. You will notice that the transitions here are between figures who represent a particular characteristic or narrative theme. In fact, a theologically narrative motif that dominates that particular era in the history of Israel. And they stand like stepstone sequences of staircases. They stand in progression upon one another. Another indication of the linkage, the integrity of the biblical narrative. It hangs together. You take one of the stones out of the paradigm and the rest of the edifice will collapse. It will not make any narrative sense. Now, as a footnote to that last suggestion, there is conflict in each era of that stepstone progression. There is the issue of rule by self or by selfish rulers or rule by God with the self subject to the Lord. That underlying motif will show its ugly head at certain points in the narratives of Eli, Samuel, Saul, David, Solomon, and so on. Now, turning to the significance of the era of Samuel and Saul, we note, first of all, that it is a fulfillment of the prophecy in the book of Deuteronomy, particular Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 20, that God would give Israel a king. This process would occur in two stages. First of all, there would be life if Israel without a king, And that's the narrative history of Joshua and Judges, Israel without a king. And then there would be life in Israel with a king. And that is 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. I'm not minimizing 1st and 2nd Chronicles here, but I'm going to emphasize Samuel and Kings in these presentations. Now, the projection of Moses in the book of Deuteronomy cannot be separated from Deuteronomy's content. The content of the book of Deuteronomy is the renewal of God's covenant on the plains of Moab, especially Deuteronomy chapter 29. So we have, in fact, God's projection of life under covenant with God, both without a king and with a king. Life in covenant with God without a king in the period of Joshua and the judges. Life in covenant with God under a king in the period of Samuel and first and second kings. Will you please notice that there is a transition between those two covenant eras. There is a transition from the era of life under covenant with God without a king. That is the era of the judges and life under covenant with God under the monarchy, that is, life under the kings. Samuel is the last of the Old Testament judges. He is the end of the era of the judges. Saul is the first Hebrew monarch. He is the first of the Hebrew kings. So we are at the point of transition between Saul and Samuel when the Old era ends, 
and a new era begins. The old era of the theocracy under the judges ends. It comes to a dead stop. And the new era, the new beginning era of the monarchy life under a king is inaugurated. I want you to underscore this transition because although it is obvious once you step back and look at it, you must realize that theocracy was not the eternal or perpetual intent of God even in the Old Testament. Theocracy was intended to be temporary and to come to a screeching halt when monarchy would be established. In other words, in the progress of the history of redemption, God intended the theocratic era to stop with Samuel, the last of the judges. And he intended to replace that theocratic era with a new beginning, the era of the monarchic kings. The progress of the history of redemption realizes that you cannot absolutize the theocratic era in Israel as if it is perpetual. For God himself did not absolutize it. He put an end to it. He surpassed it with a better age, namely the age of the kings of Israel. Now that is a crucial observation for you to make when in fact... You hear people crying out that we must return to the standards of the Old Testament theocracy for the standards of the New Testament Christian church. That is a complete misreading not only of the New Testament, it is a misreading of God's revelation in the Old Testament. He did not intend eternal perpetuity for the Old Testament theocracy. If he did, he would not have displaced it and replaced it with the Old Testament monarchy. So, the end of this theocratic era is designated by the dawn and inauguration of a new leader of the people of God. A leader who is designated not by God's charismatic endowment, but a leader who is designated by succession from the previous leader in his line. God's modus operandi changes with the dawn of the Hebrew monarchy. Something new is afoot. The old things have passed away and all things are being made new through the Davidic monarchy. Now, matching this redemptive historical shift is a transitional shift politically. Israel moves from being a tribal confederation under the theocratic judges to being a dynastic state under the Hebrew monarchs. This is the emergence of Israel as the keystone of the ancient Near East. Now, you may not be aware of the impact of biblical theology on geography. But if we map out the history of the ancient world, we have the two great political superpowers, Egypt in Africa 
and Assyria, Babylon, in Mesopotamia. And in between them, we have the nation of Israel as the kind of keystone binding that binds or unites the two. Every army that marches out of here has to go through Israel. Every army that marches out of here has to go through Israel. All the trade routes of Egypt go up through Israel. All the wealth of the nations from Mesopotamia goes through Israel. Israel is at the center of the world. The crossroads of the nations go through this little piece of 90 square miles of real estate. For God, even in the Old Testament era, is drawing the wealth of the Gentiles into the kingdom of God. All right, now, this transition becomes institutionalized with the Hebrew monarchy. That is, the African continent and the Asian continent must go by way of God's little plot of promised land, Palestine. Egypt and Mesopotamia are going to interface and interact with Israel all the way from David to the end of the kingdom of Judah. And therefore, in order to understand that history, you must understand the international politics of Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, and Persia. You will never understand the Old Testament prophets until you understand the history of the ancient Near East from 1000 B.C. to 500 B.C. The prophets will be an enigma to you because they understand the international politics of their day. All right, all of this is inaugurated, as I said, with the inauguration of the Hebrew monarchy. Israel is now going to become both a punching bag in international politics and a transition point for international politics. Crucial to what God in his providence is doing with the nations around Israel, as well as what God is doing in his sovereignty with Israel herself. Finally, this biblical theological transition or redemptive historical transition, the end of the era of God's rule by eschatological intrusion upon charismatic deliverers, eschatological intrusion upon the judges, the spirit comes upon them and empowers them to deliver Israel from their enemies in the era of the judges. But the beginning of the era of God's rule by eschatological intrusion upon a king is inaugurated with the anointing of Saul. We have therefore left the age of charismatic deliverers behind. Yes, there was an Old Testament charismatic era, and it came to an end. And there is a New Testament charismatic era, and it came to an end. The charismatic endowment by God, by special endowment of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, is only temporary. It is not permanent. They are not ordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit, as Jonathan Edwards points out so very well. They are the extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit, and they are not intended to remain in the church in perpetuity. The Pentecostals and Charismatics cannot read the history of redemption 
because they read what is temporary as normative and perpetual. They do not realize that God had even anticipated the short-lived character of that charisma by the era of the Old Testament judges, which has passed away. Or do you not recall Paul's comment, whether there be tongues, they shall pass away. Whether there be prophecy, it shall cease. All of history rightly understood indicates that they have passed away. Charismatic era is behind us as it was behind Israel in the age of the monarchy. So we have moved on to Revelation to the king and through the king. And significantly, Revelation to and through the prophets. For kings and prophets go together. Alongside the history of the monarchy is the new age of the history of the Old Testament prophets. The beginning of the age of kingship is the beginning of the age of prophecy. In fact, in 1 Samuel 2.27, we have the first of the Old Testament prophets, an unnamed prophet who comes to Eli and tells him that God is going to curse his house with death. Then, in 1 Samuel chapter 3, we have Samuel himself described as a prophet, verses 19 and 20. And then, what shall we say of 2 Samuel 7 and 2 Samuel 12? The great prophet of God to David, Nathan, the Lord's prophet. This is very important to the understanding of the unfolding progress of God's revelation. Not only do the kings rule and exercise authority... On behalf of God, the prophets are the spokesmen of God to the monarchy and to the nation. They are the checks and balances for the kings. So we cannot have monarchy without prophecy. And wherever there is prophecy, there is going to be monarchy, at least until the destruction of Israel. Post-exilic prophecy is going to long for the restoration of that messianic era. Well... Higher critics turn this paradigm on its head because, you see, for the higher critics, prophecy does not necessarily require the kingship of Israel and Judah. Without that, as Voss would have observed, without the monarchy, we cannot have inspired prophecy. Now, turning in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 16, beginning to look in detail at verses 1 to 13. The life of David is a dramatic narrative from his introductory appearance here in 1 Samuel 16 to his valedictory appearance in 1 Kings 2. The story of David overflows with dramatic quality. The narrative drama of David's career from the sheepfolds of Bethlehem to the royal palace in Jerusalem is communicated in literary terms. As with all stories, even inspired Bible stories, the literary qualities which enhance the narrative drama include scene or location, note your outline, setting or occasion, plot or story development, 
characterization or personality traits of the characters in the story, and redemptive historical or biblical theological drama. By the latter, I mean how the story of David interfaces with the larger story of God's plan of redemption in history or the unfolding of the interconnected theology of the biblical story. Applying these literary qualities to 1 Samuel 16, 1-13, we have scene or location, Bethlehem, setting or occasion, the election of David, plot or narrative development, transition from Saul to David, characterization, the personality of Samuel, Jesse, and the other characters in the story unfolds, Even God himself is characterized here in this narrative. Redemptive historical or biblical theological drama, the anointing of David, a term which appears four times in this narrative unit, verse 3, verse 6, verse 12, verse 13. A Hebrew verb, masha, to anoint, from which we derive the Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah in English. There is messianic drama here in this narrative because there is messianic anointing in this drama or narrative. The scene or location of this anointing is Bethlehem, verse 4. But you will notice that the narrative does not begin in Bethlehem, verse 1, nor does it end in Bethlehem, verse 13. There is a spatial shift from Ramah to Bethlehem. Bethlehem, Judah, displaces Ramah of Samuel, even Gibeah of Saul, chapter 15, verse 34. Now, this spatial shift is dramatically significant. Something else is shifting with the shift in location. The shift to David in Bethlehem is a shift away from Samuel in Ramah and away from Saul in Gabeah. So the narrator sandwiches Bethlehem between the spaces of the former era. The era of Saul and Samuel is displaced, shifted by the era of David. Bethlehem is the locus of a new era in the history of redemption. It is the era of a new king, a new Mashiach, a new anointed one, a new elect and chosen of the Lord. And as Samuel returns to Ramah, returns to the place where he began, he leaves Bethlehem and David in the narrative spotlight. That's what the narrator wants you to see. It is in Bethlehem, Judah, and this protological Davidide that a new era in the history of redemption dawns. Bethlehem and Ramah, Ramah and Bethlehem will interface once more in the history of redemption. When the eschatological David comes to Bethlehem in Matthew chapter 2, 
Rama will once more be a place of grieving. Rachel grieving for her fallen children when yet another mad king destroys the sons of Israel. Matthew 2.18 And you don't think there is biblical theology in the narratives? Read the connecting dots. The narrative drama of this story is framed by the structure of the account. When I harp upon Hebrew and Greek structure, I am harping upon a clue, a literary clue to narrative drama. Find the structure of the narrative and you understand the framework of the narrator's literary intent. Structure is unto theological expression. It is not an idiosyncrasy of smart Alec academic deans. It is to to load you in to the mindset of the author. It is to get you drawn in to the drama that he is attempting to draw you into. His structure is to frame his narrative so he can frame the dramatic quality of the story he is telling you because he wants you to live it. After all, isn't that what you do when you read a novel? You identify with it? Isn't that what you do when you watch a good, clean movie? You identify with it? It draws you into its drama? Well, why is the Bible any different? As if you think the writers of the Bible aren't as good as Hollywood screenwriters. They're better! Or as if the author of David's narrative can't write a better drama than Bronte's Jane Eyre. It's better. There are great Western novels. And you couldn't do worse than spending a few days reading Jane Eyre. Because it is a great novel. And it'll be good for your literary instincts. As well as your romantic inclinations. But my point here is that you've got this same kind of intense drama in the biblical writers. So don't just slough them off as constructors of doctrines. That is true. There are doctrines there. But there are dramatic doctrines there. There is narrative articulation of that doctrinal mind of God and how he instructs you in the wonderful Excitement, dramatic excitement of the life that he draws his people into in the text. Well, this era, which is dramatically being revealed through the structure of this narrative, is first of all demonstrated by the inclusio of the spatial circle. I've already alluded to that in the outline suggestion number one, the inclusio of the spatial circle. When you have an inclusio, he is including you on the outer limits of his narrative to force you into the center of the narrative drama. The inclusio is the outer framework of the boundaries of the narrative. The guts of the story are between the bookends, between the framework devices. So when we identify this structure, we want to look inside it. We want to look inside the meat of the drama that the inclusio frames. So the spatial circle 
directs our attention to the center of the meaty part of the narrative of the first 13 verses. Second, there is an inclusio of occasion, which I have suggested on the outline as number two, the anointing of David, the elect of the Lord. The structural inclusio frames David's Mashiach anointing. A third option is an inclusio of character. You will notice that Samuel opens the narrative in verse 1, and Samuel closes the narrative in verse 13. But in between, the shift in the narrative is to David as the central character. So the inclusio of character places Samuel on the outer boundary in order that at the meat of the narrative drama, David may stand out. Samuel returns to his place of beginning, but the new beginning which God initiates displaces Samuel and his era with David and the era of his kingdom. Now, notice several other indications of the relational or narrative integrity of this account. There is continuity or narrative connection between the inclusio of occasion and the inclusio of space. There is a hook word. Now, this is a technical literary term, but it is a term that is useful. There is a hook word which links those two outlines. You will notice the word grieve hooks together chapter 15, verse 35, with chapter 16, verse 1. In addition, there is a hook phrase which links the two. King over Israel hooks together chapter 15, verse 35, with chapter 16, verse 1. Our narrator has woven his seamless narrative with literary hooks and ties. He is moving from the one narrative seamlessly in narrative dramatic continuity to the next story. And he hooks them together so that you understand that they are taught. They are tied together. They belong in sequential relationship. Now that word grieve characterizes Samuel. What could be more natural than to be saddened to grieve over the fall, the sinful fall, of a man whom you anointed first king over Israel. And yet, God's rebuke of Samuel in that first verse indicates that his grief is misplaced. For Samuel's grief for Saul is more akin to self-pity. His own initial act of anointing has been rejected, so he feels rejected. In fact, all self-pity is narcissism, and here Samuel refuses to stand with God's repeated rejection of Saul, 1 Samuel 13, verses 13 and 14, 1 Samuel 15, verses 11 23 and 28, God's repeated rejection of Saul has been revealed to Samuel. The failure is Saul's, not Samuel's. Samuel is called merely to ratify God's own sentence 
on the disobedient and rebellious king. But Samuel hesitates. How can I go? Verse 2. Samuel cowers in fear. Saul will kill me. Samuel balks at God's sovereignty. Samuel is immersed in self-pity. The sovereign character of God is bracketed around the egocentric character of Samuel in verses 1 and 3. You will notice the divine I, verse 1. I have rejected. I will send. I have selected. And the divine I, in verse 3, I will show you. The one I designate. And in between, verse 2, the simpering I of Samuel. The almighty sovereign I sandwiches the paltry self-pitying I of Samuel in order to point up the circle of rebellious Saul The circle of rebellious Saul reaching out to fold in God's prophet Samuel. Go, verse 1, says the Lord. How can I go, says Samuel, verse 2. Samuel is on the brink of imitating Saul. And with his misdirected grief, refusing an imperative mandate of God. Now, I would suggest that you cannot reject imperatives of God and not be in full-out rebellion against his will and his heart. Modern Christians think that they get free passes when they reject the commandments of God. Not so. Not so to the bitter grief of church sessions, church pastors, and church members. There are no free passes For those that claim to be Christians and reject the commandments of God, God's rebuke will ultimately fall upon those who willfully reject his imperatives. This is how you know you love me if you keep my commandments. He that says he loves me and does not keep my commandments, the same is a liar. You do not play free passes with thumbing your nose as a professing Christian at the commandments of Almighty God. There are consequences for those actions. Consequences for those actions. What you sow, you will reap. Saul did. Samuel is about to tip over into Saul's paradigm. We must deal with the charge that God is guilty of subterfuge or deception in verse 2. When having commanded his prophet to anoint his elect choice, he apparently disingenuously suggests that the prophet say that he's coming to sacrifice. Observe in the first place that Samuel is duplicating a ritual pattern. He is duplicating a ritual pattern which he once before used in anointing a king as his behavior at anointing King Saul demonstrates. In 1 Samuel 9, 12, a ritual sacrifice forms the background to the consecration of Israel's first king. 
In the second place, ritual consecration, verses 5 and 6 of 1 Samuel 16, our text, requires ritual sacrifice. God is not prevaricating with Samuel, nor instructing Samuel to prevaricate. One instruction is explicit, take a heifer to sacrifice. The other instruction is implicit, anoint the one I designate. It was true, Samuel did come to Bethlehem to sacrifice as instructed. But it was also true that he came to Bethlehem to anoint a replacement for Saul as instructed. That the elders of Bethlehem in verse 4 were not informed of the whole truth does not compromise the truth of which they were informed. Or as Augustine once reminded the Christian church, you are obliged to tell the truth, but not all the truth that you may know at one particular time. With verse 4, we arrive in Bethlehem. The central location of the narrative, as well as the center of the redemptive historical shift, as we have already pointed out. But notice how the narrator telescopes the dramatic players in the scene at Bethlehem. He focuses first on the elders in verse 4. Then upon Jesse and his sons in verse 5. Finally upon David in verses 12 and 13. And as he deliberately pans his camera across Jesse and his sons in verses 6 through 11, he retards the action by freeze-framing three of the seven brothers, each of whom is passed over by the Lord. Now, why does our narrator slow down his camera work? Does it not keep us in suspense? Is it Eliab? No. Is it Aminadab? No. Well then, is it Shama? No. Nor number four, five, six, or seven, all of whom pass before the camera only to be rejected. Well, then who can it be? And after this masterful narrative retardation, our narrator lets his camera focus fully upon David. Handsome, ruddy, beautiful-eyed David, the youngest son of Jesse. We see, Hebrew verb ra'ah, we see David. Look at, Hebrew verb ra'ah. David, after looking at, Hebrew verb, ra'ah, Eliab, verse 6, and realizing we are not to look at, Hebrew verb, ra'ah, his appearance, because God, Hebrew verb, ra'ah, sees, not as man who looks at, ra'ah, the appearance, but God, Hebrew verb, ra'ah, looks at the heart. Do you get the pattern? Is the narrator giving you a cadence? Is he telling you to see as God sees, not as man sees, even as Samuel? Verse 7 contains a fourfold repetition of the Leitwörter, or key word to this section, that German term, Leitwörter. 
is a technical literary term which means key word, light verter. We've actually had two light verters in this narrative unit. We've had the word anoint and we have the word see or look at, all of which are related to the same Hebrew word, masha and ra'ah. The Hebrew word for see or look at dominates this narrative section. What does Samuel see when he looks at the oldest son, Eliab? He sees a man tall in stature. He sees a second Saul, tall and handsome in outward appearance. As 1 Samuel indicates, Saul was tall and handsome in chapter 9, verse 2. Is it another Saul that Samuel is to anoint? No. Samuel here makes the same error in judgment that Israel made in first choosing Saul. Tall, dark, and handsome, which commends no one to God. For tall, dark, and handsome Saul is rebellious, depraved, and selfish. And God has rejected him. Notice the symmetry between verses 1 and 7. God's rebuke. How long? Verse 1. Do not look. Verse 7. God's rejection. I have rejected him. Verse 1. I have rejected him. Verse 7. God's election. I have selected. Hebrew word ra'ah. I have seen. Verse 1. Not as man sees. Hebrew word, ra'ah, verse 7. The symmetry of this unit is intense. God looks on the heart. It was a man after his own heart, after God's very own heart, that the Lord promised to anoint in replacement of Saul. 1 Samuel 13, 14 The Lord has sought a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler over his people. David, God's own heart. The son of David, God's everlasting heart. The protological and eschatological tandem returns in the heart of the king who reflects Yea, who is the very heart of God himself. The irony here with Samuel is that he was born to a mother who gave life to a child who replaced the sons of another leader of Israel. Samuel himself was born to displace the wicked and rebellious sons of Eli, 1 Samuel 2, 27 to 35. And in his birth, his mother sings a song of rejection and election, a song of humiliation and exaltation, a song of the new displacing the old, the mighty are brought low and the lowly are lifted up. Hannah's song, 1 Samuel 2, 1 to 10, will be sung anew by another mother, Another handmaid of the Lord will sing her song in magnificent terms. Sing of her song, her son, in magnificent terms, Luke 1, 46 to 55. 
terms which announce a truly new and eschatological king of kings and lord of lords. Samuel's career is foretold in his mother's song, but he does not see it except as God opens his eyes, nor do we see Mary's boy child as the bringer of the new and eschatological era of the kingdom of God, except as God opens our eyes to see Jesus, great David's greater son. Old Israel does not see her king, not just Samuel, but the seven sons of Jesse do not recognize the day of their visitation. After seven, the eighth. After the seven of the old order, the eighth, the first of a new order. After those mirroring Saul in their rejection, a new man mirroring the heart of God. The old order is displaced by the new. The former order is replaced by the new. A shepherd, a pastor, a shepherd king who is God's elect, God's anointed, God's Messiah, a root out of the branch of Jesse, exalted above his brethren, one upon whom the Spirit rest. The last son becomes the first. The least son becomes the elect son. The shepherd son becomes the pastor. The servant of his father becomes the Lord of his father's servants. And to add irony to irony, we see David, Samuel sees David, his father and brothers see David as a ruddy youth, a handsome lad, a young man with beautiful eyes. Do not look on the outward appearance, but the outward appearance is attractive to look upon. What is the twofold irony? An attractively handsome Saul of Gabeah and an attractively handsome David of Bethlehem. Does it reinforce the twofold revelation of God's elect as one after his own heart? And the twofold antithesis, Saul I have rejected, David I have elected. Is the irony here intended to direct us to what God sees, to what God creates, a heart in the image and reflection of his own heart? David has what Saul never has. David has what Saul never has, a heart mirroring God's own passion and affection. Tragically, more irony, this king, this David, later betrays God's own heart. Tragically, ironically, this king later loves another man's wife more than he loves God. Tragically, ironically, this king later destroys the flock of God in his treachery. Tragically, ironically, this king later promotes his own kingdom. The history of redemption needs, we need, a Davidide at the point of biblical theological transition, where the former, the old, is rejected and the latter, the new, is elected once and for all. 
The history of redemption needs, we need a Davidite at the point of biblical theological transition where the kingdom of God breaks in an unprecedented, unexpected, and permanent way. A Davidite who is God's heart, not merely possessing God's heart, but a Davidite who is the incarnation of God's heart. A Davidite who is a shepherd whose sheep no man takes out of his hand ever. A Davidite anointed from above, Messiah in everlasting perpetuity. A Davidite upon whom the Spirit rests, who possesses the Spirit so as to become the Spirit. As Paul says in that remarkable text, 2 Corinthians 3.17. What depths of profundity are before us here? And you would stop at the surface. Oh, the riches that you leave on the table. Such a Davidide is the eschatological David. The Son of God is God's very heart incarnate. The Son of God is the elect of the Lord. The Son of God is the eschatological shepherd of the Israel of God of the end of the age. The Son of God is the King of kings crowned with glory and honor by his resurrection from the grave. The Son of God is the eschatological David who surpassed in every way his prototype, his protological type, David ben Jesse. In conclusion, then... Let's consider the events of 1 Samuel 16, 1 to 13 in canonical perspective. By canonical perspective, I refer to the summary treatment of David's election and anointing through the unfolding development of the canon of Scripture. The books of the former prophets, as the Jews labeled Joshua through 2 Kings, contain the narrative record of the historical David. The books of the latter prophets, as the Jews label the writing prophets Isaiah through Malachi, reflect on the historic David of Israel's past, redemptive historically, in order to eschatologize him. The prophets eschatologize the David of past history. That is to say, the prophets look back in Israel's history to the David of the past and project a David of Israel's eschatological future. According to the Old Testament prophets, a king like unto David will appear in the future to shepherd the flock of God forever. The historical David becomes the foundation for the eschatological David, according to the inspired Old Testament prophets. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and on his kingdom. Isaiah 11, 1 and 10. A shoot shall spring up from the stem of Jesse. Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Jeremiah 30, verse 9, They will serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Ezekiel 34, 23 to 24, I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. Ezekiel 37, verses 24 and 25, My servant David will be king over them. He shall be their prince forever. 
Hosea 3, 5. Afterwards, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. Amos 9, 11. In that day, I will raise up the fallen booth of David and rebuild it as in the days of old. The figure of David is prominent in the Old Testament writings, especially the Psalms, Psalm 78 and 89. In those two Psalms, the writer gives poetic expression to the election and anointing of David, Psalm 78, verses 70 to 72. He chose David, his servant, to shepherd Jacob, his people. Psalm 89, verses 19 to 29. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil. I have anointed him. Look what the prophets do. Look what the poets do. They look to the historic David. They go back to the historic David of Israel and they project him into the future or they rehearse and recall his historical significance in the history of redemption. And finally, we turn to the inspired apostle Paul. We turn to the first recorded sermon of the inspired Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 13. In verses 20 to 23 of Acts chapter 13, we find the contrastive element and the prospective element. The contrast occurs in the transition from the era of the judges to the era of the monarchy in verses 20 and 21 of that chapter. Paul recognizes that the theocracy was not permanent. It was succeeded and displaced by the monarchy. Paul continues by contrasting the two monarchs, Saul of Benjamin and David of Judah, verses 21 and 22 of Acts 13. The prospective element in this portion of Paul's sermon is the promise of a savior through the line of David, Acts 13, 23, our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice verse 22. In Acts 13, 22, there is a rich katana or a rich chain link of passages from which whole previous, from the passages of the whole previous canon of the history of redemption. Notice in Acts 13, 22, I have found David, a quotation from Psalm 89, verse 20. A man after my heart, a quotation from 1 Samuel 13, 14, who will do all my will, a quotation from Isaiah 44, verse 28. Paul reads the canon of the Old Testament redemptive historically. The organic relation between the historical David, protological David, recorded in the former prophets, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st Kings, poetically recorded, remembered, and rehearsed in the writings, Psalms 78 and 89, projected into the future by the latter prophets, eschatological David of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos, is fulfilled in the evangelical and apostolic proclamation of Jesus Christ as the eschatological David. What Paul and the New Testament writers do is what we have attempted to do here this evening. They trace the historical David through his narrative and projection by the Old Testament canon in order to display the fulfillment of the Davidic figure in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every aspect of the biblical canon except the Pentateuch, every aspect, every part of the biblical canon except the Pentateuch contains an aspect of the revelation of God through David. Former prophets, latter prophets, writing, gospels, apostolic works, 
David is a central figure to the inspired New Testament writers as they see the unfolding drama of the life of David fulfilled in Jesus Christ. From the protological David to the eschatological David, David the first to David the last. So that we may say David's downward spiral at the latter end of his career does not prevent the New Testament writers from characterizing Jesus Christ in Davidic terms. Whatever enigma David presents to us does not destroy his redemptive historical significance to the inspired New Testament authors. The protological David drives us, impels us, forces us to the eschatological David. There is our true and final shepherd king, and in him is the ultimate solution to the mystery of the enigma. Who is David? So don't forget to read David's final Career in the light of the way he is portrayed by the inspired New Testament authors. That is a clue to how different he is in heart, in repentance, in broken contrition, from hard-hearted, stone-cold Saul of Gabia. Any questions or comments? You can't ask for your money back because you haven't paid any money. <laughs> you again, daughter. Okay, uh, when you were talking about the transition uh, from the age of the judges to the monarchy, uh, you said that uh, the monarchy is a better era. Uh, economically, I can see that. Um, but when Samuel talks with the people about that transition, he tells them it will not be a good thing. And so um, how do you rectify the reading of the monarchy as being a better thing with what Samuel says? This is Samuel having sour grapes because the judges are going to be wiped out, um, and he's the last of them. <laughs> no, there Samuel is being a political realist, even as Moses is in Deuteronomy 17. Moses anticipates some of the hardship or the evil that will come upon the people of God as a result of electing a king. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, Samuel's being a realist, and the realism is that the monarchy was not perfect as any sinless any leadership in a sinful world is not sinless. But in comparison to the, <clears throat> uh, the uh, chaos of the era of the judges, this is, relatively speaking, a much better era. But it is also better in terms of the anointed of the Lord. The anointed of the Lord possesses an endowment which uh, elevates him to the role of a shepherd king so that the pastor ruler figure, which David is and embodies, becomes emblematic of the goal or the role of the kings of Israel uh, and Judah, even the uh, kings of Judah and the divided monarchy. So there is this uh, character expansion, a, a better type of character is going to be leader rather than a charismatically endowed Samson, for instance, who is endowed by the Spirit for great mighty feats, but he's also a womanizer and a fornicator. So the end of the book of Judges, which has that terrible uh, uh, narrative of the dismembering the concubines, uh, the Levite's concubine, 
is a testimony to, shall we say, the spirit of the era of the theocracy under the judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was, you know, libertine chaos. There was hedonistic depravity. Uh, That final story is a story which leaves its mark upon the end of judges as a kind of sermonic statement. This is how bad it got in the promised land. Cutting up female bodies and passing them around. Ugly, brutal stuff. So, in relation to that, uh, idealistically and by projection, the uh, Mashiach, the anointed of the Lord, is a better figure. Continuing on with that, that idea, why would a succession that was started by the anointed of the Lord be better than God selecting people who are charismatic leaders? Why, why does that become better? Because it, it, uh, it grants this continuity to a line of descent, which is a covenant motif. And so in 2 Samuel 7, you will see God make his covenant with the house of Judah, and he will be a father to them, and they will be a son unto him. So we have this intimate relationship of father-sonship in this royal line, which is not merely filial, okay? It's not merely historical. It's not merely, shall we say, dramatic. It is reflectively ontological. And you'll have to stick with me uh, and let me spell that out when we come to 2 Samuel 7 because you have to ask yourself, why in the revelation of 2 Samuel 7 does God choose those relationships, those verbal relationships, those words, those metaphors, father-son? What is behind that? Does that come out of the blue? Is that just something he's doing to uh, talk about uh, uh, genealogical descent for the house of Judah? Was there something remarkably profound about that? Namely, he talks about himself as a father to the house of David as a son because he's already an ontological father who has an ontological son. Now, that'll blow the socks off of you when you begin to think about that. And then, and he would call you his sons and daughters. My, my, what grace is this? What is he doing to us? So rich is his affection that he'll even dominate, denominate us with the name of his ever-beloved and only begotten that we should be called the sons and daughters of God. I have not seen. Any other questions or comments? Yes, Margaret. As you outlined the importance of David, it's a little more understandable why there is such an attack on David. That's a good thought. Uh, In some ways, he's too good a king. (laughs) Uh, In other ways, he's uh, got feet of clay. But yes, uh, thanks for the observation. Uh, It's somebody they have to knock down to the peg of their own level. Well, and he's a type of prey. Yes. Yes, if they're going to resist Christ, they're going to resist the David who anticipates him. Very good. Other observations or comments? Yes, Scott. Um, when you use the term theocracy, can you define how you mean that? I mean that rule under God, okay, which ends with the anointing of Saul, and it carries with it the theocratic legislation of that era, 
And so uh, carries all the specificity of that theocratic legislation into displacement and replacement. Uh, <clears throat> the perpetual morality of the Mosaic law does not, is not uh, compromised under that. So we're back to the issue of distinguishing between what is specifically theocratically judicial under that era and what is perpetually moral and binding. No, it is not a theocracy as God himself ruling the nation through these charismatic deliverers, okay? It's God ruling now through an appointed monarch and that monarchy being extended by succession with God's approval. Now, they are supposed to consult God. The prophets keep calling them back to uh, look to the word of God. But it is not that immediate theocratic involvement of God directly upon the charismatic uh, deliverer. That, that is gone, and in my opinion, the judicial legislation of that era is gone as well, because the monarchy brings, Solomon brings in a whole new type of, shall we say, uh, casuistical law in Israel, which he borrows from the wisdom of the East and other places. In other words, there's a kind of comparative uh, uh, legal constitution going on in Israel, the way she handles herself with respect to the nations. Yes, art or, yeah, no. Well, you've been very patient. Thank you for your attention. And uh, Lord willing, see you next week at 7 o'clock. Pick up with 1 Samuel 16, verse 14.